Hello all again to all of my friends coast to coast and around the world. This is Brandon Charles with this week's installment of Breaking Bread with Brandon. I'm really excited about this because it is an archive episode from my old show called Breaking Boundaries, which I hosted in Arlington, Virginia. Shout outs to WERA 96.7 FM, a great low power community radio station that I was very proud to be a part of. My show ended up being sponsored by an organization called Melwood, and they provide jobs to people with differing abilities, disabilities, people of all abilities. And I had the pleasure of talking with Scott Gibson, who handles workforce developments. This conversation took place in mid 2018. And I'm really excited to hear this, especially in the scope of what's going on now with the job shortages and the opportunities that all employers have to hire a very diverse workforce. And this is also an invitation to Scott to be a guest again soon so that we can find out what's going on nowadays. Without further ado, this is my conversation from mid 2018 with Scott Gibson breaking bread with Brandon. So how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful to have you and definitely good getting to talk to you a little bit about uh, what's going on before the show started. It, it, there's just so much going on right now. This seems to be a busy time of year, especially trying to get a lot of things taken care of, I'm sure. Yeah, we've got a lot going on. There's some things in Congress that we're definitely worried about and regulatory landscape has got a lot of opportunity and a lot of threat out there. And we're celebrating our 55th anniversary. Uh, so we're celebrating our success, but we're looking forward to our new challenges and to helping people with a wide array of services in the new year. Yeah, that's great. And uh, it really seems like there's kind of a it's almost a rebirth of sorts uh still continuing to provide uh, a lot of the same services as before but also really focusing and doubling down on some things and really getting actively involved what's one of the things you're most excited about that'll be emerging soon so one of the things i am most exciting about is melwood's uh, branching into training job training specifically for jobs in the IT field because you know for 55 years we've been proving that people are perfect for the job people of differing abilities are perfect for the job and in the beginning you know our wins were getting an opportunity any opportunity and with a track record of success like ours now we're helping people kind of choose their path and pursue any job that's out there so what we see as we move forward is Melwood looking to position itself as a workforce development solution um, we're going to take people and we're going to prepare them for the jobs that are in demand, the hot jobs that are out there. Um, so uh, a Bill IT is a program that's looking to do that. And this is a perfect marriage between a workforce development need in an area where we know uh, there are a lot of people with interest and a lot of people with skills that if we provide them with the right training and the right wraparound services, they'll be able to succeed in these entry-level jobs 
filling a major need of our local economy and our local labor force. Yeah, it's very important, especially nowadays where technology really plays a large role in communication and uh, in developing a lot of things. It's definitely a huge economic shift uh, occurring right now. Uh, we're still getting ready for it, I think. It's, it's There's going to be a lot of dramatic impacts in the next five to ten years. But uh, how have people been as far as being receptive uh it seems that melwood has a lot of businesses that are willing and open-minded but what are have there been barriers in the way of educating people or what do you think it takes in order to bridge that gap between uh say an employer who might have potential doubts and melwood who helps the employees find their career yeah, as much hope as I think there is out there, we still find ourselves occasionally fighting what I call the bigotry of low expectations. Yes. Um, and so one of the things that we've really been wrestling with is <clears throat> we've spent a lot of time preparing people with different abilities for the jobs. Now we've got to spend a lot of time preparing employers uh, for these opportunities to embrace this part of the workforce. And there's a growing optimism about this because they realize there are some hard-to-fill jobs that – if they could open themselves up to creating reasonable accommodations, they could fill these very hard-to-fill jobs. You know, let's just take, for example, cybersecurity and people on the autism spectrum, right? Yes. We know that there are approximately 350,000 cybersecurity job openings, and that's up from about 200,000 in 2015, according to CyberSeq, which is a project supported by the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education and the National Institute of Standards and Technology in collaboration with the U.S. Department of Commerce. Well, at the same time where there's that overwhelming need, we know that there are going to be 500,000 500, transitioning youth on the autism spectrum aging into adulthood over the next 10 years. And two-thirds of young people with autism have neither had a job nor educational plans by the time they leave high school. Only 58% of high school students with autism today are leaving with a transition plan or have a transition plan by the age of 14, which is required by federal law, but only 58% of them have it. You know, ironically, many of these same young transitioning youth um, who are unemployed or underemployed because they're capable of a lot more than the opportunities they're currently being offered today have heightened abilities that can really benefit them well in cybersecurity jobs. We're talking about things like hyper-focus, meticulous attention to detail, affinity for repetitious task, and visual and systematic thinking. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to bridge that gap. So when people, employers in particular, think about these jobs that are hard to fill, they start thinking about this untapped population, people of differing abilities. And let's stop thinking about differences. Let's think about this as neurodiversity. Absolutely. Let's think about this as how can we leverage their strengths. Um, and so Melwood's doing a lot of work to prepare the employer so they can tap into this population. I have two interesting components of that that I really want to go into. Uh, one you brought up, so we'll start there. So you're right in saying that sometimes uh, people don't have a good transition plan the people who really are looking for a career what does that look like what do you believe is the best form of transitioning say I, I think you mentioned age 14 for example how do you ready someone in the right way for that so I think the first thing we need to do is we need to break or we need to fix a policy that is inherently broken what a lot of people don't realize today is that a high school-aged child and their parents face a difficult choice. If my child graduates with the typical high school diploma, it can put some of their support services at jeopardy. 
And a high school diploma is the entry point for most jobs today. Yes. Because a lot of employers think of that as a critical requirement, right? Yes. So the first thing we've got to do if we want youth to transition out of high school and into employment is we've got to start addressing that policy disconnect right there. Okay. You know, a, a high school diploma should not ever put support services in jeopardy. How so? I, I'm Actually, it's the first time I'm hearing something like this. What does it do in that way? In some cases, what it does is it puts their vocational rehabilitation services in jeopardy. They may no longer be eligible because they've got to try mainstream before they can go through supportive services that they would get at a state vocational rehabilitation agency. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder if this is particular to particular kinds of people. I know, for example, I've had some services from uh, vocational rehabilitation in a college setting, but I don't know. I mean, there's it's kind of a system that it's not really i think that's another problem too is the system's not very clear like the goal for vocational rehabilitation is obviously vocation but the the here and there and the plans that are developed to get someone there aren't always very clear and with the states cutting funding to these various agencies or with people who are sometimes working in these agencies who aren't always aware of all the resources either that are meant to serve people with uh, various abilities uh that also creates, I think, a very strong disconnect. It does, you know, and we operate in a multi-state fashion within this region. So we have operations in Maryland and in Virginia, and the states take different approaches at the same time. Um, so we do a lot of programming, and we create a lot of opportunity people, for people through what's called the Ability One program. Mm-hmm. So the Ability One program, Melwood is providing a contract service for a customer, say the federal government. Okay. And we're doing that not because we want to provide the service, but we want to give somebody what we call a supported employment opportunity so they can learn job skills, they can learn what it means to be a productive member of a team, they can work on both technical skills and soft skills that are necessary to succeed in work in a supported environment. Some states will fund those opportunities and will help somebody be placed in them. Some states will not fund them across the board. Some states fund them on a case-by-case basis. Uh, because they're worried about whether or not they are inclusive enough. Um, and so we do need to wrap our heads around, you know, what role do opportunities like that play? I think they're great leap pads for people to start. You know, you can get an opportunity, you can build some confidence, you can learn some skills, and you can get experience, which is a number one determining factor in whether or not you're going to get a job offer. You know, study after study shows people are more likely to hire somebody with some job experience than they are somebody with no job experience. Yes. Um, So states need to start wrapping their head around that. Um, We need to not sacrifice these good opportunities because maybe they're not perfect. I think they're great opportunities. Um, But the states need to address that. Do you think it's practical then with that in mind? Uh, It seems that there have been some programs, the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, coming in the early 1990s and some modifications slightly made, some amendments a few years ago, but there really hasn't been a lot as far as uh, forward moving federal regulation as far as this is the standard, this is, uh, and also sort of the accountability thing where we are dealing with employers who kind of find ways around hiring people with various abilities and kind of still inevitably end up creating some discrimination barriers as well. Uh, Do you think that, you know, if it was sort of a regulation across the board, do you think this is something that each state has to address? Or do you you think the system's so messy that there's really no way to implement something on a federal level? No, I I think there needs to be federal guidance, Uh, particularly when you're in an area like ours, you know, you cross state lines, 
fairly easy. It's not uncommon for somebody who lives in Virginia to work in D.C. and vice yes. versa. Um, throw Maryland into the mix as well. People commute across the three. Um, I think one of the challenges that we need to start figuring out is how do we make sure that we're maximizing the workforce development incentives that are out there so that way they're inclusive of people with differing abilities. For example, under the Workforce Innovations and Opportunities Act, uh, you'll hear it called WIOA a lot, there are funded apprenticeship opportunities. There's grant funding out there for it. There's tax incentive out there for it. Again, one of the major challenges that people of differing abilities find is that often these apprenticeships require a high school diploma. How can we open these apprenticeships up to be more inclusive, to be able to tap into that population of people of differing abilities? And folks are talking about this. Uh, recently in a guest blog written for the Campaign for Disability Employment, Josh Christensen of the Partnership on Employment and Accessible Technology discussed the potential of disability-inclusive apprenticeships in the uh, in the tech industry to help close this skills gap that we're facing. Again, remember I said it's like 350,000 open jobs in cybersecurity alone. Yeah, big deal. And, you know, it's a he very said big deal. It's a huge deal. I mean, it, we hear from employer after employer in this area that entry-level network operations center analyst and security operations center analyst jobs, they just can't find the candidates. And when they can find them, they can't keep them. So let's find a way to tap into this population. Uh, but let's not just worry about it in a regulatory sense that's punitive. Let's also start incentivizing it because it's good for the economy. You know, if you want to get the DMV economy booming, find ways to put people to work. And we know that the population of people of differing abilities is underemployed or unemployed. Yeah, it's it's been really hard for me because being uh, I am blind and visually impaired myself and then also having networked with a lot of different people. There are people that will apply for jobs. Uh, they'll have a phone call with an employer. It'll seem like it's going well, but if they say that they're blind on the phone or they, they mention their disability on the phone or they walk in with a cane or mobility aid, that immediately seems to create this disconnect and this distrust, I, almost I, I would have to call it, between the employer and the person and then the whole dynamic changes. And that's a huge concern to me because there are people that sometimes already have the capability. I mean, I know people who have master's degrees, uh, even on the other side of this, uh, who have master degrees who have uh, disabilities who maybe haven't been involved in specific uh, uh, vocational rehabilitation agencies, but obviously have the skill set, obviously have the qualifications, but there's still that huge disconnect between what people who are employers uh, are willing to accept in their minds and the barriers they're willing to break down and the skill set that these people actually have. And that's a huge problem. It is. And that's why shows like yours and conversations like this are so important. Because really, if we want to move the needle, we've got to focus on creating some societal change, right? We've got to work on dispelling some of these myths that there are some employers out there that they just believe, you know, the cost of an accommodation is really not as expensive as anybody might think it is on average. Um, and then there are benefits to employing people of differing abilities that nobody seems to want to focus on. Yeah. So before I was the you know head of programming at Melwood, I come from an HR background, and I can tell you replacing employees costs money, right? Yes. The higher your turnover, the higher your shared services cost because you just have to keep replacing them. It is much cheaper to keep an employee. Retention rates amongst people of differing abilities are much higher than they are for the typical population. So in addition to most of the myths not being true, like myths about the cost of accommodation, there are these benefits out there that employers, 
if we can just find a way to get them to understand it, if we can bring them to the table for conversations like the one we're having today, you can make an economic argument that not only is opening yourself up to employing people of differing abilities the right thing to do, it's just good business. Yeah, it's very pragmatic, and that's why it's kind of shocking to me that there's all this data out there, but I don't know if maybe it's consolidated. I mean, it seems like it should be. It seems like there's at least a few government sites that specify this, but it just seems like there's something that's missing in translating this back to people. And I don't quite know what it is, and I'm not sure if it's just going to always end up being this sort of uh, one employer at a time battle or one string of employers at a time battle, but it just seems like something that in 2018, uh, when we look at how easy or it is, for example, like technology, as has been one of the focuses. I, when I was growing up, I remember starting to use some of the first computers. I mean, I've, who would have thought that 10, 11 years ago, you'd be holding a computer in your pocket? And not only that, but now it's a computer that everyone can use and make phone calls on still. Absolutely. And, you know, as close as we are to this issue, it's very easy to focus on the progress that hasn't been made or or the distance left to the finish line. This is true. But I do just want to take a moment for us to remember how far we've come in essentially 55 years. So, you know, 55 years ago, Melwood gets founded basically by a group of parents because their children were aging out of school-based services and there wasn't a lot for them. And so they create on land donated by the federal government and with an army surplus tent, a training center to teach horticulture skills so they have a meaningful activity to do during the day. From there, all of a sudden we start entering into these contract opportunities uh, because somebody drove by and they said, hey, if, if you can raise plants, I've got a garden, can you take care of it? It was a professor who was going on sabbatical. Can you take care of this garden while I'm out of town? Then the federal government opens up the Wagner O'Day Act, Senator Javits amends it to create service opportunities at contracts. And so in 55 years, we went from there being no opportunities to there being some opportunities. And now we're trying to go after all the opportunities, right? So somebody gets to pick their path. And it's frustrating that we're still not there, but it's only been 55 years since like none of this really existed. This is true. And I actually have to thank you for saying that specifically, because I think where I have a hard time in my personal life is that I'm uh, probably like you, I'd say I'm very passionate about this particular thing. Like I get, uh, I get very emotionally invested in this. Like I'm very passionate. Like when I hear someone's story and how they're just, it almost seems like they're trying to bang up against the wall and are not getting through that that's hard for me. But to hear you say that is a very valid point and it's, it's very important. What do you think? I guess, where do we go from here as far as I guess, kind of allowing there to be, I guess, Maybe a, maybe psychologically, maybe this is the best question to ask. How do we kind of keep ourselves present psychologically and to ensure that we still stay focused even when it seems that people aren't well-educated or they still have these barriers that are so ingrained in them, this, this kind of systemic prejudice that kind of exists in people? Yeah, well, you know, I really think one of the things that's going to help us there is that generationally we're just changing. And as new generations enter the workforce, they expect inclusion. As new consumers enter the economy as adults, they expect inclusion. And some of this is being driven by changes that occurred in education settings, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, 50 years ago, schools for special education were separate. 
And then slowly they evolved to where they were in the neighborhood school, but it was the special education hallway. And now we have inclusive education. And so I think we're at this great place where generationally the demand for this change to accelerate, the demand for progress to accelerate, is just going to naturally occur because education policy led the way. And my mother uh, works with special education in Baltimore County, Maryland's public schools. It's an inclusive setting now. That's wow. all these children have ever known. Their K-12, pre-K-12 experience is going to be one of inclusion. You can't tell me that when they enter the economy as consumers and when they enter the workforce as employees, that they're not going to expect that same level of inclusion. Um, and so what I keep seeing and what really reinvigorates me is as you know, these generations continue to become more influential, they're demanding it. And I'm seeing more progress being made each year. Um, and so that's the, the kind of stuff that kind of keeps me up and keeps me going um, as I think about this change and I think about all the progress that's left to make. So particularly with you, uh, you've had various experience. You mentioned your HR background, and obviously you're currently the uh, currently dealing with a lot of the programs uh, that Melwood offers. Uh, this is a very interesting field to be in. What motivated you to get involved specifically serving people with various abilities? So for me, it's personal, right? And I think actually, if you were to talk to a lot of Melwood leaders, it's personal. Um, I grew up in a family where my favorite uncle uh, had challenges. So he lost motility over the course of his life. And when your experience is to watch a loved one of differing abilities face challenges, doing the things they love, being included, feeling like a full member of their community, losing a little bit of their sense of self as they lose their professional identity. Um, and unfortunately, this happened for my uncle at a time where it pulled him out of the workforce. There, there weren't many options for him to stay. You kind of naturally become an advocate. Yes. Um, because it, it means something to you. Um, and you start to realize that there are a lot of people in the community in the same situation that my uncle was in. Um, and so from there, I started my career in public policy, uh, working in Maryland government and for the state senate, um, and always tried to quietly advocate. And then I gave of my free time for volunteer organizations that look to help people of differing abilities uh, in the greater Baltimore metropolitan area. And one day I got this call. And uh, this call presented an opportunity for me to kind of blend that personal passion with my professional ability and, and come to Melwood. And I've been here for five years. So I imagine that there are probably various employers who also get to come and to visit Melwood and to watch this happen because what I'm hearing you say right now is how it's very natural. It's same thing for me. The reason I even wanted to get into the media to have these conversations in the first place is because I needed to. I mean, I, I enjoy doing it, but I think it's important to get this stuff out there. And I think that everyone serves their purpose in a very unique way without forcing our hands so much. What do you think can help kind of uh, still have that natural development, but also allow employers to feel like they're not necessarily, you know, just being forced into it, but also they're really seeing, they're really seeing it, not just getting the statistics, not just, you know, hearing about it, but really seeing it in action. Well, I think, I think most employers are there you know? and they're getting there. So, I mean, you've got big firms like KPMG, right? Okay. And KPMG is saying, you know, we're not going to focus on it as a difference or a disability. They're thinking about it as neurodiversity. You know, there, there are people out there who might think of issues differently, who may process information differently, and that that can be a strength. They're realizing that this enriches their organization. Um, they're recognizing that it's becoming a market demand. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the, the American public wants to see inclusion. The consumer wants to see inclusion. And so some of the major companies are starting to get there, and they're funding their own initiatives. KPMG, big organization funding its own initiative. Ford Motor Company doing the exact same thing. Um, and so I think you're going to see these kind of big dogs in the business world take the lead on this issue, and others are going to follow suit. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's very helpful, definitely, to, to hear that. And I, I do agree that it seems that we're moving more toward there. And I, I hope that perhaps some businesses that are kind of maybe on the fence about this are listening to this and are able to uh, kind of search search within themselves to really see uh, the results. What do you think needs to be... Uh, sort of a core focus at this moment moving forward I, I know there's there's it seems like there's always so many different things that need to be done what do you think should be the primary focus as far as a goal point moving forward I think we need to start talking about how do we tap into the workforce development incentives specifically for this population. So when we think about workforce development and we think about all these jobs we need to fill, we need to think about this untapped population and start leveraging those economic development dollars and workforce development dollars. You know, right now, historically, organizations like Melwood have thought of themselves first and foremost as a uh, provider of services to people of differing abilities. Well, we need to think of ourselves and we need to market ourselves as workforce development solutions. You know, it shouldn't just be state vocational rehabilitation agencies that are coming to Melwood looking for solutions. Workforce development boards, economic development agencies, they should be coming to us too because we can help bridge a huge skills gap for businesses in this area. Um, So I think that rebranding, so people don't think about VR providers, vocational rehabilitation providers, is just they're out there providing services to people with differing abilities but look at us as they're providing workforce solutions you know they are developing an untapped workforce to meet business needs we we've got to create that optic change yes. uh, because if we create that optic change i think it'll be easier for organizations like melwood to partner with businesses and i think it will really truly touch more on what we're doing you know we are providing people opportunities to go to work we are preparing people to go to work. Um, And so we need to start thinking about ourselves as what we are. We are a workforce development engine. Yeah. And I think that especially to your point of ensuring that there's other agencies involved, I think that if every county could somehow have an economic development, uh, sort of being able to leverage those relationships along with the vocational rehabilitation agencies, that also, in a practical sense, would cut costs. I I think that, you know, so far right now, you know, what I end up hearing from a lot of these uh, vocational organizations is, well, we don't necessarily have the resources, we don't have, you know, the money to fund this particular thing. But if you work with organizations that are experts in this field instead of being a separate entity it seems that's really where the connect could happen and it would allow there to be a smoother process and maybe this would just be built directly into the iep or curriculum uh, of people in their transitioning yeah i also think that opens up a path for financial support from employers because they realize they're building a pipeline for their jobs and so you look at the good work that organizations like cvs are doing right Mm -hmm. you know cvs is in the healthcare business nationwide they've got pharmacies everywhere 
they realize that they need to build a pipeline to keep those jobs filled, right? And so what are they doing? They're investing in creating things like learning labs with mock stores so they can teach people what it takes to be successful as a CVS employee. So Melwood, we're proud to partner with CVS. We think they're a great corporate partner. We appreciate this corporate responsibility from them because they're saying, hey, look, it's in our interest. We've got jobs that we constantly need to fill. We need to build this pipeline. You've got folks that want jobs. There's a lot of synergy there. Um, and so they're leveraging their resources. We're leveraging our best programming to create a real solution for them that's bringing them economic value. And so they're willing to invest in it with things like that mock store in the learning lab. You are listening to WERA 96.7 FM. This is Brandon Charles, and this is Breaking Boundaries. My guest today is Scott Gibson of Melwood, uh, Vice President of Programs and People. And if you like programs like this, you will like many things on this radio station, but especially maybe programs like Aging Matters, talking about the aging population. You know, there's older people that are also, uh, sometimes they transition into having a disability and they uh, need resources as well. Uh, you can catch Aging Matters Tuesday afternoons from 2 p.m. to 3 and also choose to be curious the intersection of curiosity and everything with lynn borton every wednesday morning from 10 a.m to 10 30. Uh, check out the full schedule at wera.fm and perhaps you want to be a part of this organization a volunteer get involved in the various programs that are a part of arlington independent media not just on the radio but also on television you can make your dream of being a producer of content a reality through WERA, as well as Arlington Independent Media, Public Access Television. Uh, I, was, I always loved sharing this story, and I'll share it one more time. I loved hearing from my little nine-year-old friend Silas about how he went to one of the summer camps offered by Arlington Independent Media, and he produced a spoof of the show, The Office, uh, with some kids. So it serves everyone. And, well, that's what community is all about, as you're hearing. Community media, supporting community organizations, serving the community everywhere. For more information, go to arlingtonmedia.org. This is Brandon Charles, and my guest today is Scott Gibson. And, you know, I was just thinking, actually, as I was talking about uh, the aging population, and we talked a lot about younger people and transitioning, uh, but something that I've heard from people, which tends to be a bit of a problem, is you have people who, they get older and they end up having a disability once they age. It's not something they've always lived with. And then the problem is, is you know, sort of what you were saying about your uncle, uh, that it seems like they were having resources taken away from them. Are there things that are offered to that population of people to help them transition in a point in their life where they kind of already had something built and now they kind of have to rebuild again? You know, there are certain programs that are funded through community service boards and vocational rehabilitation agencies. Uh, that help them. I will also say on the Maryland side, at the at the very least, um, they are a population that is an area of focus for Workforce Development Board. So I sit on what is called the Barriers Subcommittee mm -hmm. um, for the Workforce Development Board. And the populations with specific WIOA programming, that's that Workforce Innovation and Opportunities Act programming, are um, the the aging population, people of differing abilities, 
returning citizens, which are those uh, individuals who were involved in the criminal justice system incarcerated and have now returned to their neighborhoods. And then not only the veteran population, but their families, because there's a recognition that there's a challenge there. When you kind of have to follow your spouse and loved one around as they get their orders, it makes work harder. Um, and so from a WIOA standpoint, you see a lot of opportunity for those four populations uh, being funded. In Maryland, it's, that work is being done through the Workforce Development Boards. That's great. And also, this is an awareness month for people of differing abilities, all abilities, disabilities, however you frame it. It's just bringing light to the fact that people are skilled. And Melwood is doing a lot this month in order to spotlight that. What are some of the various things that are going on to spotlight that? So we're doing a lot of talks with our customers and with our partners. So we're going out there in the community and talking about where we are in terms of uh, disability employment. You're right, this is National uh, Disability Employment Awareness Month. Today is the first day, so I'm really excited that we can have this conversation. First day. Because, you know, our goal is to go out there and just shine some light on the truth of where we are today. We've made a lot of progress. We're very proud of the work we've done over 55 years. But we also know a lot is left to be done. You know, slightly less than one in five people of differing abilities are employed, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's startling. Yeah. Definitely. I, I totally agree with that. And that's uh, where I have this just feeling sometimes of seeing so many people hit a wall. And it seems like it seems like we're turning the corner on that. I'm starting to see more newspapers doing articles about this. I'm starting to see more uh, nonprofits similar to Melwood uh, around the country that are starting to really push the PR for this because it's really important to brand the workforce development and to show the results that it has yielded and to demonstrate that in a very pragmatic way to various employers and also to empower people who want to be thriving members of society and employees of these organizations and businesses. Yeah, and I mean, there's been a good policy change that's starting to happen and that we're really pushing. Um, you know, one of the things that's really hard to believe is that there are 228,000, a little more than 228,000 workers of differing abilities who are paid less than the minimum wage mm. today in this country. So when the Fair Labor Standards Act was set as part of the New Deal, right, that's how old this legislation is. Section 14C allowed for people of differing abilities to be paid less than the minimum wage. And that's something that continues today on a national level. Um, Melwood eliminated its 14C certificate and said, that's just not good business. That's not a world where people of differing abilities are fully included. Uh, so we personally ended our use of it in 2013 uh, when our new president CEO and I came on board. And then we led the charge in Maryland, which is one of only three states. There are only states. three states nationwide three states. who said, you know, no, the minimum wage is the minimum wage, and everybody deserves to be paid at least the minimum wage. Uh, so now we're in Virginia, and we're going to be leading the charge here to have an open dialogue about 14C, that it's antiquated. You know, back when there were no opportunities and you really had to kind of get around some boundaries, maybe it had its place, but it does not have its place in 2018. Um, and so we're really going to be pushing that conversation as part of our talks this month throughout the community. It's time to end that practice throughout the region. Do you find that you're having partners that agree with you from uh, who are employers or other agencies that are that are working alongside of you to to really lead this charge? Yeah. So the uh, National Institute for the Blind has really come on board with us and led the charge. And there are a lot of other nonprofits that believe this is the way to go. I will tell you, uh, the folks that tend to be hesitant about it 
It's just that they're hesitant about it. They're wondering or they're worrying, are there other opportunities out there? If 14C goes away, then what? What's going to happen to these folks? Um, and some of that's reasonable and it, it's understandable. You know, if, if you're uh, a, a service provider and you're trying to do your best, it, I can understand fear because you don't want to replace something with nothing. Uh, but it's 2018. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's time that this happen. Um, we've already started making baby steps towards it. Like I said, three states have outlawed it. In the Ability One program that operates under the Service Contract Act, they no longer allow the use of it. Um, so I'm optimistic that we'll see this continue to occur. But there are still some, some nonprofits, very well-intended nonprofits, I should say, that they're just concerned, they're hesitant because they're not sure what that means and what it can possibly be, uh, be replaced with to make sure that opportunities don't go away. We're in a very interesting time right now. Uh, you know, we've talked about generations, we've talked about technology, and, you know, it, it really ties right into this as well, is that, of course, there's some concern, and of course, there's fear. I think there's general fear and concern in society in general. Uh, what we see kind of right now is this sort of this, uh, uh, the way things were and are versus the way things are inevitably going to be paradigms that are occurring right now. And there's going to be, I think, a radical amount of change over the next 10 to 15 years, if not sooner. Uh, I mean, who would have thought four years ago that there would be such accessibility, you know, with things like shared ride services like Uber or Lyft or, you know, other services where people would be, you know, taking, you know, shared ride services to places, uh, you know, same thing, like I said, with the phone, you know. 10 or 11 years ago and it might not seem like it directly correlates to this but it does because those things save people time those things provide more opportunities for people to get around those things also allow for you know for example i can be anywhere now and for better or worse respond to emails and be able to get things done and in a way that i was not able to do before but that also has its set of uh i guess I don't know if I'd call it drawbacks. I think I just call it a radical transformation that now we're trying to figure out, okay, what does the new economy look like? Because technology is going to play a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, technology is definitely a double-edged sword. I was having a conversation with Betsy Bowman, who is the president of Benetech uh, out in California. And Benetech is the largest e-reader library out there. They were providing uh, e-reading solutions before Kindles and Nooks and everything like that had taken off. And on one hand, AI is great, right? Artificial intelligence, whether it's Siri or Cortera or Google or, you know, whatever whatever your tool of choice is, has done a lot to um, change the nature of adaptive technology. Um, and one of the greatest things it's done is it's brought scale. So, yes. you know, I, my Siri is the same as your Siri. And when you get to a scale like that, you bring down cost. Uh, but the other thing that it has done is it has removed this kind of label or, or, or something that identifies somebody as different or as needing accessible or adaptive technology. So um, 20 years ago, if you'd had somebody with a digital reader in front of them when everybody else had books, that would have stood out. Now, everybody's got an iPhone or a tablet or a laptop in front of them. We, we've become accustomed to this. It's, it's just part of society. So that is great. The, the scale coming uh, out to the population in general, our growing comfort with it, fantastic. At the same time, we see technology changing over and eliminating jobs where we were once employing people. And this is a reality, not just for the population that Melwood's serving, but in general. Yeah. You know, we're automating a lot. 
a lot of the jobs that we're doing today, a lot of the jobs that people at Millwood are being supported in today, they're being reduced through automation. Um, and so one of the things that means is we've got to start preparing people, not for today's jobs, but we've got to start thinking through what are the jobs of five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Um, and so we've got to be investing a lot in technology and technology education. You know, we, we've got to make sure that folks are prepared for these jobs of the future. Yeah, I think this is a very important conversation to have. And, and I'm really actually glad we're having it. And I think more people should be having this. Uh, you know, I, I think every business and, you know, even people who are legislators should be having this conversation because it's unfortunate, but inevitable. And I, I'm not here to say either way what, you know, how the decision-making process has been good or bad. I mean, sometimes automation has definitely created more barriers, but there are, as you said, it's a double-edged sword. There are definitely some advantages. For example, I think of, uh, you know, speaking of artificial intelligence, now there's an app where I can just kind of hover a paper over it and it scans the contents. I remember when I had to hook a big scanner up to a computer and I had to like scan the paper through it and run that, you know. Uh, so now it's simplified things. And to your point of using mainstream technology, yes, uh, as a blind user, I get that software. That, you know, the voice software is built in. It's built in on, you know, the Mac or uh, the Windows machines are still kind of working through that there's an open source software that's called uh, and uh, non-visual desktop access that's uh, uh, kind of becoming popularized but uh, yes it definitely brings costs down um, I guess you know it's 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 hard to tell we're in a very we're in a very split time right now because it's really going to be kind of hard to, we can kind of plan for it but it's also going to be just a little difficult because all we can do is just make sure people are educated on these technologies we don't necessarily know all of the opportunities they're going to create yet i don't think unless you would agree with that or disagree yeah, with that. no i mean you're absolutely right we just know the theme understanding technology i mean as you look to the future people are going to succeed if they understand technology if they know how to leverage technology um, and so that's what we've got to focus on. That's the only thing that's certain, right? Yeah. Is that technology is going to be a major player. And those who are able to leverage it, those who are able to use it, will have an advantage. Um, so we know that focus is something that we've got to work towards. We've got to make sure that we're teaching people how to maximize their use of technology. So you mentioned cybersecurity as one field. I'm curious if you have some ideas as to some careers you think are going to be extremely viable in this space over the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, so um, in terms of just computer technology, cybersecurity, absolutely. Web development and coding. You know, they say coding skills will really separate people um, or, or put people at an advantage in the job market because more and more jobs are going to require at least basic coding. So you've got cybersecurity, uh, web development, coding, and then even basic office certification, you know, being able to show that you're kind of head of the class when it comes to using the Microsoft Office suite, um, we believe that'll put people at an advantage. And that's just in computer technology. Beyond that, you've got computational thinking. So one of the things that computer technology has done is we can leverage more information than we've ever been able to leverage before. So folks who have a skill set that allow them to digest a lot of information, notice trends, see patterns, take that raw data and form something meaningful with it, that's going to be a skill set that's going to be in high demand in the future. And so those are the technology jobs of the future. Yeah, I think in my mind, as you were saying this, I was thinking of something that 
you wouldn't think of this immediately, but writing seems to be something that's becoming extremely important as well. When you think of, uh, I, I know that social media tends to be very photo based, but I think that also being able to uh, create thoughts. I, I know people, for example, who've had intellectual challenges who it's actually helped them to clearly communicate their points of view. Uh, maybe their only issue is that maybe they're not as easily understood when talking, but they can, they're very intelligent. They're very uh, able to communicate uh, in certain ways, but writing has allowed people, uh, either people with, uh, I believe, MS, uh, you know, people who have lost functioning to be able to communicate. And I think it's something that's also kind of an underestimated and underrated uh, tool to have. Yeah, uh, particularly if you can take that large data set, boil it down to some things that need to be understood, and then communicate it in writing. Um, you know, that is going to be a highly sought after skill. If you can communicate an idea in writing, you know, you are going to be better prepared for a job of the future. And I, I got to think about one of my colleagues, his name is Joe. Um, and Joe manages one of our largest databases, right? Mm -hmm. And to your point, if you were to have a conversation with Joe, like you and I are having today, there would be some struggles there. Verbal communication is not a strength for Joe. But Joe can digest a tremendous amount of information. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of this data set. And he can communicate things in writing. So even somebody like me, who doesn't know much about this data set, understands it. He can draw trends that I can follow. Um, and his main form of communication is writing. But that's extremely valuable to Melwood. Yeah. And so I think there's going to be lots of opportunities for folks like Joe as more and more companies, more and more organizations are developing their data sets and they have all this information at their fingertips because somebody's going to have to discern what we can learn from it and then they're going to have to communicate it and chances are they're going to have to do it in writing. That's a really good point as well because simplifying the data, because not everyone, I mean, while there's going to be a lot more jobs that are technology based, not everyone is going to be an expert in uh, technological jargon and lingo. So I think, yeah, to your point, it is extremely important to also have people who can say, okay, this is what it means. This is, uh, you know, because there are people out there that are still, you know, some older employers. I mean, you got to think. Uh, technology is still really new when you think about it sort of in the same way that you mentioned that 55 years ago that wasn't a lot of these uh accessibility measures in place i think i'm gonna say like 25 years really we've seen this development of technology especially over the last 18. oh yeah i mean just think about the changes of computers in our lifetime right like i still remember when my family got our first personal computer from home and it was the family christmas gift mm -hmm. you know we started it was green on green screen and five and a half inch floppy disks and personal mm -hmm. computers and now we're at a place where you're right your phone is a computer i mean that's all happened relatively quickly and i think it's some of what's accelerating the progress we're making when it comes to employment of people with differing abilities because technology does help bridge a lot of gaps technology helps people leverage their strengths and draw them out and share them with the world um, and so we're very excited about that. It's something that I don't even think we understand the full potential of. I agree. And I also, while this might seem trivial and, and while it might kind of be a little a little too invasive in some people's lives, I think that social media does seem to serve a very important purpose of reaching people where they are. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to how that can even help to get the word out and, and if there's any particular thing that Melwood's doing or if you think there's a, a way to kind of reach people. Uh, because obviously consumption habits with social media are a little bit different than, say, 
say directly talking to an employer and you're kind of you don't know necessarily who you're reaching at the moment but you know that you're reaching a certain audience so i think the beauty of social media is that it can make things personal right yes and so you know i told you my connection what drove me to try to make a difference was my personal connection and i think there are lots of us out there that we have a personal connection that drives us but if you need to change the hearts and minds of people who for whatever reason don't have a personal connection social media is a great way to do it and so social media kind of like this radio show it needs to be a place of storytelling yes we need to shine a light on success we need to shine a light on difficult conversations that still need to happen like eliminating 14c uh, because social media makes it personal and i really think if we want to move the needle we've got to make it personal for folks uh, because if i share with my network my personal connection all of a sudden my personal connection becomes personal for them and so i really love that social media is this forum where we can have conversations where we can make it re very real you know it's one thing for me to talk about the number of people of different abilities who are unemployed or the struggles that somebody face faces when it comes to employment but when i can put a face to it and i can put a story to it something that you can relate to it becomes much more impactful right yeah. And social media lets us do that. And that's what's so exciting about social media coming around at the same time that we're trying to push the societal change. It's going to be a great media for doing this. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest words of the year uh, is podcasting, and I think that it's allowing people to take personal power into their own hands and actually be able to tell their story in their own ways. And this has really been a gift to kind of be ahead of the curve for the last few years to start this, and now starting to see people uh, recognize this is a very valuable way of communicating with people. But I think that's really what it's about. Uh, I think that you can throw statistics at people. You can. And I'm not saying that they're they're invaluable, but I think that storytelling that is the most important thing you and i having a conversation while talking about these pragmatic details also providing that human element to it providing the fact that you and i are very interested in this and want to see this happen and, and that our passion can show through our voice in that way as well yeah no absolutely and i i think that's what's going to drive change and i think that's what makes change lasting and sustainable we've got to have people personally invested in it um, and the only way to get there is by sharing our stories I, I have to say, also, when it comes to Melwood, uh, I've been very appreciative of what they've done uh, for this particular show, but I, I appreciate also the fact that a lot of major media advertising is going on right now as well, and that other people who, you know, for whatever reason, just aren't listening to a show like this or just haven't heard of it yet, or uh, people who, you know, are consuming different forms of media, whether it's print, whether, you know, it's different kinds of uh, music formats or talk formats or news talk, whatever, that they're hearing about this. And I think that really is important to have that sort of marketing and, and being able to get that out there in various media, whether it's social media, whether it's traditional media, I think all of them are still just as relevant and important. Absolutely. So I want to give you a minute or two, since we're kind of approaching the end of the show here, I want to just kind of make the floor yours. Uh, if you have anything particular you want to talk about or say, uh, what do you want to leave people with? Go ahead. Sure. I, you know, I just want to talk about the exciting work that Melwood is doing. So we are focusing on what we call the C's of the future workforce. Computer technology is fundamental, and I'm very excited that in January we are going to be launching pilot programming to prepare people for cybersecurity jobs. Um, and we are hopefully going to prove concept and grow that out, and you're going to see us become a workforce development engine there. 
we're looking at construction and deconstruction and hopefully within the year, uh, within the fiscal year, so by June 30, we'll be launching another pilot there. Um, I'm also really excited, and I just kind of want to, you know, brag a little bit about some of the big partners that we're working with that are helping move this needle, because Melwood is not doing it alone. You know, I mentioned CVS. We're right now in our first pilot class with CVS. We've got eight folks going through an externship there, and I'm very optimistic they'll soon be placed, and we'll become a pipeline provider for CVS. And CVS is much more than just retail. I, you know, everybody kind of knows the retail interaction, but they've also got minute clinics, and they've got pharmacy benefit management, and everything that a big organization would have. So there's lots of opportunity there. Right around the corner, there's a Marriott in Crystal City that picked up the phone and said, hey, we want to explore ways to work with you to create a pipeline of jobs create a pipeline of job candidates for us, um, and we're doing good work there. So I want to take a moment just to recognize those employers, and there are so many more um, that I could probably spend. You know, we're working with like 200 employers in the region. Wow. From the small, like Don's Cafe in Prince George's County, who's been a longtime partner of Melwood's, to the large, like MGM in National Harbor and CVS, um, who have big hiring needs and who are hoping to build a pipeline with us. So we're not doing it alone. You know, we got to we got to support the companies and the businesses that are making this type of investment, show them that it was worth their while, that we appreciate what they're doing. Um, we're going to be out there throughout all of National Disability Employment Awareness Month having these types of conversations. You know, if there's an employer out there who's hearing this and they're thinking, I want to start, but I just don't know how, you know, pick up the phone and give us a call. Because for 55 years, we've been proving that people of differing abilities are perfect for the job. We've done a lot to prepare individuals with differing abilities for work, but we're willing to work just as hard on the other side of the relationship and help the employer overcome their fears, help them feel like they're ready, and provide them with real workforce development solutions. All right. What an amazing conversation. What amazing insight. I'm telling you, if more people thought like Scott did, we would not have a lot of these discrimination issues that we currently have nowadays. I just want to say much love to Melwood, by the way, even after all these years. Um, if I could honestly, you know, I'm going to cut the music. I'm going to be really honest about something that I've wanted to say for the last few years. Uh, I'm in my 30s now, and I was doing that show in my late 20s, and Melwood was kind enough to sponsor the show. I don't feel like I gave them everything that I could have given them in as far as promotion and marketing and everything. So like I said, this is not only an invitation for Scott to be on again, but also for the partnership, because even though this isn't on the airwaves of DC radio and I am around the country, I really think that it's extremely important in this global economy that we build partnerships. So I am putting it out there. Let's make it happen. Let's really create actual jobs for people on the spectrum and various disabilities, not promises, but jobs, because that's what we need. Real progress. Thank you for listening to Breaking Bread with Brandon, and I will see you again next week.